Welcome back to another episode of Activism Uncensored. It is now the 20th of May. Today, we have uh, Morgan on. Uh, Morgan, why don't you uh, introduce yourself, uh, where you are and why you're there? Hi, Josh. Um, I'm Morgan Coland um, from New Zealand originally. been living in UK and London for about 11 years. And I'm presently in... Um, her Majesty's, His Majesty's Prison High Point in Suffolk because I climbed the QE2 bridge above the M25 and suspended myself there with a banner saying just stop oil for two days. Um, you know, I absolutely love that. You know, that was a incredible action. I was, um, I was in prison myself when actually, when you did, when you did that, uh, uh, you've just been given You've just been given a sentence, if you, that's right, haven't you? Is it, um, did you get three years? That's right. And uh, Marcus got two years and seven months. That's right. Yes. Is that, the, is that under the new, um, the new uh, police crime sentencing bill you've been sentenced under? Yes, it was um, Section 78 of the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act. Section 78 is public nuisance. Yeah, well, um, I'm glad to have you on the have you on the show. To be honest, mate. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'll sit now. Um, I want to ask you so a couple of questions about yourself. Really, uh, how did you uh, how did you first get involved in activism in general? Well, I was living in the UK in 2018, and I heard about the start of Extinction Rebellion and the in the media mm-hmm. and then at the beginning of 2019 I realized that someone who worked in my co-working office um, was organizing things for Extinction Rebellion someone I was uh, you know, casual friends with and um, and yeah I guess because I actually knew someone I, I, I went to some events and um, thought this is right on as ambition had really ambition to the, the scale of the mm-hmm. you know, terrible. Was you crisis. was you aware of the climate crisis before before that? Yeah, yeah, I've been aware of it since I guess it was a teenager in the nineties. I was aware was aware of it. I remember going up to the mountains a lot when I was a teenager and just thinking, ah, there's not as much snow as I'd like. Yeah, I was always always anxious about the snow just because I wanted to have fun in the snow. Mm-hmm going snowboarding and stuff. That was the first time I started mm, kind of worrying about it. I just uh, knew that inexorably there would be less and less snow for my life. And, and um, yeah, that was the first time I started thinking about it. And then I, I yeah, began reading the IPCC reports. And like, I think I first read one in 2005. Um, printed one off at my office and had a read-through. Wow. Yeah, 2005. I don't remember which round that was. But I remember I read that and I was like, this is really, really bad. Oh, and I, I left it in the office. Um, there's a big corporate engineering firm in New Zealand. I I, I put it in the, the, the staff lunchroom thinking, well, obviously people will want to talk about this. <laughs> Pretty dire, isn't it? And um, no, no, one, no one wanted to talk about it. <laughs> so I sort of, yeah, dropped it. I was like, okay, this is weird. Yeah, um, isn't it like carry on, carry on with life? 
Yeah, it's, it's yeah. kind of strange how some people manage to do that, you know. It's like, oh, yeah, this is a, you know, it's basically the, the world's going to come to an end, and they just kind of go, oh, right, okay. And carry on with life. Yeah, right? because I, I had the option of just, you know, withdrawing into a very privileged lifestyle and just, you know, going on holidays and going in the outdoors and doing lots of fun outdoorsy stuff and hiking and camping and snowboarding and and uh, I just did that. I moved to Canada because there's lots more snow and outdoors over there. And um, and yeah, for a long time, I just... Okay. How long is that? 2005 to 2019. Yeah, that's a long time. It's 14 years, isn't it? Of just of just uh, chilling, just doing all the great stuff I've been able to do because I've just had a very privileged life, really. Yeah, well, uh, I actually don't know much about your background, to be honest. I know that you're, um, you're a bridge engineer, but... Um... So how many different places around the world have you lived in over the years and just um what kind of uh, what kind of firms have you worked for? Um ever since I graduated university I've worked in consulting engineering like for a big for a consultancy firm doing mm-hmm. designs and calculations for the different structures and mostly bridges for the last 12 years. Um lived in for a few months if we count the places I lived for a few months Australia for a few months Canada for a few years India for all told about over a year. Wow. Um, and and Britain. What was that like in India? I'm um, quite interested in that. Yeah, I mean, I, I only saw a, a tiny fraction of, of India, but I lived in Delhi for a while, which in, in many ways is pretty horrible, <laughs> but in lots of ways is fascinating. <laughs> it's a fascinating place to just explore as a historical, as someone curious about history um where mm. else i live in uh near near the himalayas near kashmir wow in the hills that was really beautiful it's just so fresh and gorgeous up there um yeah, and where i was then in the ganges for a bit um out east in bihar for about a month or two in different times wow you've really um, lived in the ganges quite a well traveled yeah, person aren't you yeah, I had a, a very interesting time, and um, yeah, it was very, very good to me. Like I had such a good time in India because you know you get fed so well as a as a as a foreign um, engineer, you get treated really well, and life's really good. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had a very, very interesting good time. All right. Okay. That sounds like you've had a pretty awesome life, to be honest. Pardon? Sounds like you've had a pretty awesome life. It has been great. It has been great. Um, Can I ask you a bit about? Because um, now the case for the uh, for the bridge action's over. Um, how much planning went into that? Because uh, it must. I can imagine being a bridge engineer. You must have tried. To, you must have done it in a way that was uh, <clears throat> safe <coughs> for yourself. Well. I mean, a- anyone who's capable of using ropes for accessing <clears throat> would would have been able to do what we did. It wasn't, uh, no, no, no specific secret knowledge. Yeah, at all. I know. <laughs> it's all it's all on Google Earth. You just have a look on Google Earth, and <laughs> everything's um, right in front of you. Um, ha- so, yeah, harnesses and ropes, yeah. really into it. Harnesses, ropes, and whatnot. Yeah, they're great skills to have. Everyone involved in activism should learn to use harnesses and ropes. Yeah, to be honest, um, so you I, don't I do anything dangerous. <laughs> I, I learned because of building lots of 
bamboo towers for Extinction Rebellion. Mm-hmm. And that's the only reason I learned to use ropes and access. I remember that's where we met, isn't it, through um, Extinction Rebellion? Yeah, yeah. It was um, great having you along on that crew. Is it is it okay to talk about that uh, action now? Is it all over and done with? The, I, I never heard anything. Oh, well, it's not. I mean, it's, it's in, still got a, an appeal at the Court of Appeal to appeal the, the sentencing. But... I, no, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I meant the action that we did together on the... Um, on yeah, the absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that one's... Um, I think there's a there's a claim against the police for being unnecessarily violent and and, and disproportionately just arresting everyone in, in the first few minutes. Just for, um, just for everyone who's listening, I just want to clarify. Um, on that day, we got a we got a, an old bus and and pretended to be a wedding party, and uh, drove it right through the middle of an extinction rebellion protest and um, tried to erect a tower on the roof of the, on the roof of an open an open air. Single decker bus with the police. Well, I think the most the mo- mo- most salient fact was where exactly we parked the bus. Yeah. Where, where was that, Josh? Uh, that would be right outside the Shard in the centre of London. Yeah, it was on. I mean, it was on London Bridge, mm. or or just the, the the entrance to London Bridge. Yeah, just the, the just bridge. It, yeah, the main road. <laughs> very busy you can see why it raised a few hackles amongst the police but they um oh yeah they, were they, they definitely they definitely overreacted um compared to what the law says um you know they went in with batons and smashed windows and generally sort of went we're, we're like hitting... it was a pub brawl the lawyer, our lawyers described the video footage as like a pub brawl and, <laughs> and the, the point was that it's that's that's not that's not the law. There's people stop to protest in the road. You don't immediately take out batons and start smashing things and tearing them off roofs and very doing dangerous things and yeah. hurting people. They definitely overstepped the mark that that day, but uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if we'll ever get any uh, anything back from that. From I don't think they'll ever see well, any consequences from that. Do you? Well, yeah, there is. There's a there's a claim against the police in progress. Um, because because of some of their actions weren't really following mm. the law, so that that's in progress, and we'll see we'll see what comes out of that. Anyway, I want to take back to the bridge action because um, are you not have you not got like a fear of heights at all? You know, being so high up, I would have been I would have been um, I would have been shitting myself to be honest. Um. I mean, some 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 moments the heights feel scary when um, just at transition points, like it was quite frightening to start shimmying up the cable, just leave the ledge and start shimmying. Mm. It was quite frightening to get off the cable to, to swing off oh it and, and transition onto the ropes to just then abseil down from the ropes. Um, and 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 one, once I had a little wobble when I was shimmying up, I thought. I was losing my balance, but I mean, I was strapped on all the time. Yeah. But still, there's, a, there's yeah, yeah. Those transition moments are still a bit quite scary. But <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Just, like, have to move past them. Don't dally, dally around like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I like, I have a quote that I've I've uh, I come to realize, uh, which probably seems quite relevant. It's um. Brave, uh, <clears throat> bravery is not the absence of fear. Bravery is acknowledging that fear and then doing it anyway. 
which I think is yeah. quite relevant for you and being so high up in that bridge. <laughs> yeah, I think it's um, not letting fear be your dominant emotion. You're yeah. obviously going to have fear, but you've got to have something stronger to, um, to dominate your... Can I ask about your... Uh, your... Can I ask about your... We've talked a bit about the climate crisis, but can I ask about your personal motivations for wanting to take the action and make that sacrifice. Um, what does it mean to you, this... Uh, well, how, how, how do you see this crisis that we're in now? Like, how, how, would, how do you see it? Um, well, I took part in the Just Stop Oil campaign because it's, it's the first step that should be urgently taken mm-hmm. to, to begin dealing with... The, the climate crisis and, and I think the climate crisis is the the biggest symptom of the more ge- broader general ecological crisis and ecological collapse or in the climate mm-hmm. the, destroying the climate's the the biggest the biggest um type of damage we're doing to the world that, that sustains us I and mean, there's all the other kinds of damage too but um it's pretty horrific isn't it I mean personally personally I also thought about different people that I'd met uh, met in different parts of India a few few, few different people I got to know personally Um, people that just had very basic lifestyles and very little material wealth and when you know people like that, you just realize that this, they have so little um, ability to protect themselves from dangerous climate conditions and all the, all the effects that flow on from that, like food scarcity and water yeah. scarcity and all those problems. They, they've got no way of just hopping on a plane and getting the hell out of here or, or just buying a bigger AC unit and, you know, insulating their house more, whatever. There's a lot of people that have no way to hide. And I just get, I, I think I knew a few people like that. I don't necessarily think they're, they're totally um, in the, the firing line right now, but I know there's millions, hundreds of millions of people that are in that position right now. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> and I just thought, how could I answer to those people I've met? And I know there are people like that. How can I answer to those people? Because um, where I live, you can have a, you can have quite an influence on things. It makes it can have a big effect. These civil disobedience um, yeah. campaigns in in places that are centers of centers of power, like politically and financially, it can have a big effect. Whereas if you're Someone living in a um, irregular suburb of Delhi, doing very you know, menial jobs and barely scraping by with several kids to feed. You know, you've just got you've got no ability to influence any of these things. So I guess what you could say is we've got like a, we have got a privilege in the fact that we we live in a very influential country and we have the means to be able to, you know. We we have the means to be able to survive, uh, shield ourselves, insulate ourselves from the climate crisis. But what's more is, um, I think with our country, well, maybe not for very long, but 
we do have like pretty good human rights and we have pretty decent prison conditions like um how would you ha- what, what are the conditions like for you in in prison where you are now oh they're they're fine like it's i mean it's a bit dull but i've also got lots of time for reading and the food at this prison is quite good i mean compared to the one i just moved from it's a bit better mm-hmm. um yeah but but generally i think britain's got like the most um, humane and and uh, evolved justice system of anywhere in the world. Like it's the most gentle and reasoned and and just um, system. And it doesn't work for everyone like that. It still has lots of structural racism and structural inequalities in it. Um, but when it does work to its principles, the British justice system's you know, one of the better ones in the world. It, it, it is a, you know, it's one of the things that Britain has led the world in, and and that means you you can you can do a lot of civil disobedience in Britain without fearing for your life and your family's life and have, and and fearing that you'll ruin your life and you have some horrible misery imposed upon you. Yeah. Um, whereas lo- lots of people. Do face that lots of in lots of countries like people who try to protect their bit of the Amazon in Brazil can just get shot by um, maybe not by the state but they'll be shot by by people um, paid by people who want to use the land for other things and yeah. perhaps the state doesn't provide any justice it just lets um, rule of law break down in these areas and lets horrible things happen whereas. Um, Whereas in Britain, we, we can at least be assured of our personal safety. And that's quite a miracle in historical context. It's like probably never happened in the history of the world. Oh, like, right. you consider every, every different struggle for justice has happened over millennia. What we've got now is like completely magical and never before seen like, mm. in human history. So I think we have to use it to its limits, absolutely, because we've also got like existential crisis, which is never before seen. So um, I think a, I feel the massive responsibility on on me living in living in such gentle conditions, um, because there's it, we, like in one hand we have such gentle conditions in Britain, but it's sort of underhandedly and by sort of deni- deniable means we're doing a horrendous violence on much of the world so it's a, it's a massive um, uh, privilege yeah it, <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a massive um, yeah so if you was uh, if you if you were to say anything to um, other Britain other British people hearing your voice right now uh, would you recommend them to take up civil rights Going civil disobedience. Yes. Would you? Well, obviously, you probably would, wouldn't you? But I mean, uh, <laughs> what do you? What, what? Where would you recommend them that they go uh, if they were just getting getting into this or just considering it? Um. Well, I gather that there's Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil. And yeah, yeah. Animal Animal Rising are all doing different civil disobedience actions. Yeah, um, I, do, I, do, I do say that quite a lot on the podcast. There's, there's quite a few um, 
different different uh, groups you could go could have, different uh, you know different routes you could go down really um taking so you can take a you know slow match and just a pile which i think is more at the extreme end of the client movement and then you've got extinction rebellion who are doing more of like the the they're trying to go down the uh, the generic route of trying to get mass mobilization I and mean, you know greenpeace have been around forever trying to um <clears throat> you know force governments and corporations into action through legal routes so there are lots of options yeah. well where... there's, there's other cool things happening like um palestine action ah trying yeah to shut, shut down shut down arms suppliers that are supplying all the military tools to keep people that Impressed and imprisoned and oppressed and imprisoned in Palestine and yeah, it's horrendous. And there's some pretty there. there's some pretty cool groups that uh, um work in solidarity with with um, migrants and asylum seekers. Like there was something amazing that happened in Glasgow a few like last year sometime when the immigration enforcement was there to take away a couple of men and then some people stopped their van and someone locked on under their van, locked his hands under the vans to the axles. And then people just gathered in the street to stop that immigration van from moving anywhere for the whole day. And in the end, they had to give up. Um, well, and they just really and released them. Yeah, they well, they didn't end up trying to... I don't know what, I think they... I don't know if they were in the van already or whatever. Anyway, they didn't get taken, they didn't get deported because hundreds of people just gathered in that street and stopped it happening. And, and I, I think I think that actions that create solidarity with with migrants and asylum seekers are just incredibly important because no matter how successful any of this climate emergency response is, there'll be oh, there'll be hundreds of millions of climate refugees, even in a best case scenario. Yeah. So we, we have to completely change our like national mindset about about um, people needing to migrate because it'll be life and death for hundreds of millions of people in our lifetimes and yeah the the, 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 the current position in British to the public discourse is, is pretty is pretty dire it's considered a, a yeah. political like political uh, there's a big big reservoir of political support by just hating on people who need to travel to other places to save their lives I mean um it's just got to get rid of that attitude. Otherwise, we're all doomed because we'll just end up fighting each other and it'll be horrible. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I, and, and, a lot of, and a lot of people just have immediate sympathy. I mean, most ordinary people in Britain have immediate sympathy for anyone who's had to leave their home for their own safety and fleeing violence. Um, it just becomes completely toxic when it's put into a political sphere. And, you know, I, I've said it... It all I, goes wrong. Because I, I, uh, I work in construction... Um, I said I've come across quite a few like racist builders, and I say to them, uh-huh. well, "If you was in your country and there was a war going on or there was a famine going on, and you had kids, wouldn't you try absolutely everything to get your kids out of that country? Like, wouldn't you be one of the? Wouldn't you be willing to get on a dinghy boat and travel tra- 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 across the oceans and do every- do all that stuff? And they they say, obviously, yeah, they do anything for their kids and." Um, most people would do anything for their kids, and I think we need to stop looking at migrants as the other and start realizing they are just like you. You know, they have hopes and dreams. They have children. They have loved ones. They have all every every of you know. We start looking at them as 
fellow human beings and not just like the other, really. Um, yeah, ab- absolutely. I think, I mean, all, all of these problems become interrelated when you realize they're all about empathizing with people far away, people you don't know. And um, um, when you seriously look at, if you were seriously start to look at how do we help all these people that are migrating, one of the first things you'd recognize, oh, we maybe stop destroying their homeland with you know, the violence we do on the climate. And, and perhaps then, you know, hundreds of millions of people wouldn't need to leave their homes because of war and famine and things. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in whatever campaigns can help us empathize with people far away. Because I think that's one of the main reasons why I could, could take pretty serious action because I actually knew some people mm-hmm. who would be in that situation. And, um, and it's, I, I've been reflecting on one historical event in Britain that gives me a lot of hope. And, and it came up again because I re- watched the, the Freddie Mercury movie a couple of weeks ago. But I, I was thinking about this as I was going back and forth to court. And that was what happened in the, the Live Aid concert in 1987 when effectively what happened is a big cultural event gave millions and millions of British people an outlet to express their care for you know the other one, the people who were suffering somewhere else that they're never going to know. Mm-hmm. And when there was a big cultural channel set up to encourage this, it just, you know, care poured out. Like, loads of people wanted to give and and help and care for people they're never going to meet. So it's all there under the surface of just about everyone. Um, I see all I the rhetoric about... What, I was going to say, I see all the rhetoric... can make it come out again. I see all the rhetoric about, the rhetoric about immigrants being the other as like a, a divide and conquer uh, idea, basically, you know. You get everyone hating the other person, you, you kind of take their attention away from the people who are really screwing you over. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's a very basic first line of the playbook of totalitarian, authoritarian government. You, you've got to make people afraid and make people fear your government so they keep their heads down and stay in line. And mm. you make people afraid by... by punishing and um, finding some minority group to to demonize and punish and and make people afraid because they see what's happening to this minority group and it makes everyone think well I don't want to have that happen to me I mean it's happened in loads of horrible like regimes and you can see it's it's completely happening in Britain the, the you know a government that's not doing very well the conditions are not great in Britain and getting worse. And so they ramp up their demonizing of migrants and asylum seekers because mm-hmm. they just want people to be afraid of something. So they paint migrants as the enemy and terrible and the downfall of our society. And they just spend lots of you know airtime just demon- spreading that kind of hatred and, and yeah. using that to keep everyone feeling afraid and and wanting to follow a, you know, basically despotic um, regime. Uh, also, now I wanted to ask you 
about your uh, <clears throat> are, are they going to be relooking at your sentencing are you uh, you're going to be appealing your sentence is that right yeah there's an appeal lodged and we're just waiting to hear when it will be heard mhm uh so is that on the grounds that your sentence was too strict um yeah my my lawyers have put in the grounds i i'm not familiar with the details of it but they're just um just yeah they they have it's unbelievably strict that really isn't it you know um three years for causing some minor disruption under the public that's yeah, that's the longest sentence anyone's ever received for climate activism in the UK in history. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, there's some other public nuisance convictions in, in recent years, and the, I think the most extreme one so far was the case of James Brown for climbing on an airliner at City Airport, and um, he eventually got four months for that. So... Yeah, they've just... Um, they stepped it up massively, really, haven't they, with you? Um, yeah, it re- reacted. And, and I think, in a way, that that is... that. In a way, this this is ultimately the, the goal of civil disobedience, to, to do... To, the, the aim of any civil disobedience against a regime is to, to, to provoke the regime to overreact. Which they definitely have by, by overreacting, by overreacting, um, it creates a a big effect on on all the sympathetic part of the country, and um, so in a way, the overreaction is is useful for the the cause because well, t- if they just about... something more reasonable, it would um, not be such a an uproar. Whereas as it is, they get hundreds. Of, People writing to me, I know there's thousands and thousands more people who see this and think, oh my God, what have we become? Like, what is happening to this country? The, the crisis of climate breakdown is getting worse and worse with sort of lukewarm measures taken against it. And and, and the government's just going crazy on imprisoning people who who point that out. So <laughs> well, it really is. I hope, I, hope it, I hope it provokes more people to... To take whatever actions they can. Can I ask and, you? Um, I think it will. Do you know about the upcoming uh, solidarity march uh, in a week from now, twenty seventh? I I heard there was some kind of march about um, about our case. Yeah, not much. No. <laughs> okay, so there's going to be a, a big uh, solidar- solidarity march uh, against. It's going to be against the police crimes and sentencing bill. Uh, hashtag not my bill. And there's quite a lot of organisations going, and you, it's it, you guys, it's in solidarity with you, you and Marcus. Oh, great! Oh, with all the other organisations. Yeah, fascinating. So, yeah, that's brilliant because I went to quite, a, I went to a few of the um, the kill the bill protests back when they were putting the police crime and sentencing bill through Parliament, and I thought it was fascinating seeing how many different um, different civil society organisations were allied against it, and I was like thinking, huh, in a way, there's, there's not many things that could have brought so many disparate groups together. Like there were Gypsy Roma Traveller groups speaking at this rally and there were Black Lives Matter people speaking and cause they really, it's horrible what they're doing and giving the police more powers to stop and search because they know that will be used disproportionately against black and brown people. And um, there were Sisters Uncut, 
women's rights groups at this end. I've got a list here. Um, Do you want me to... And Extinction Rebellion and, um, uh, yeah. So in a way it got lots of people who often disagreed about exactly how we should achieve, like, co-liberation effectively but it got everyone working together and friends of mine like were having a very interesting time organizing these rallies together and i went to some and um i had a really interesting time just meeting people from those other social movement groups so that's fantastic that it's uh it's it's kicking on do you want to hear some of the groups that are going to be there please tell me so we've got a uh, extinction rebellion um we've got what's this one now We've got Kill the Bill, obviously. Um, the Peace and Justice Project. Um, Black Lives Matter. Um, yeah. What's that one now? Money Rebellion. Okay. And oh, yeah. Animal, Animal Rising. Uh, Plastic Rebellion. Uh, Fuel Poverty Action. We've got Republic. We've got a... We've got a Just a Poil, obviously. We've got a Disabled People Against Cuts. That's pretty cool. I've not heard of those before. I'd have to get some of those on the show. Uh, we've got a uh, Don't Pay Energy Bills, uh, Stand Up to Racism, and Campaign Against Arms Trade. You know what? Some Brilliant. interesting people there, actually. I could do get some of those people on the podcast myself. Yeah. But yeah, they, they're marching against the um, Public Order Bill and in solidarity with you guys, who are obviously the first people to really get screwed by that. Yeah, well, um, I think we weren't the first. I think, weren't you and the first group to get convicted under the public order? Yeah. Uh, the uh, police come sentencing for public nuisance? Yeah, but I got sentenced. Yeah, I mean, I think Louis got the worst sentence. He got like a one-year suspended sentence for the Formula One. Okay, right. right. We've had... Uh, you, you, you were the first. You were the canaries. <laughs> well, you're the guys who've had it, you've had it the hardest, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um there's there's something really interesting going on there. Um, just the big the big picture around all that, and um, and I started thinking about it because I was in Pentonville Prison and I found a, a tatty old copy of John Locke's um, Two Treaties of Government, and he was a a philosopher, political philosopher around in the English Civil War, well after that actually, seventeenth century. Mm. Back when when Britain's like modern political settlement was being worked out, where we have like a, a a parliament that's a supreme authority and 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 all that, and and it brought everything into a really clear picture for me because like Locke lays down some of the basic assumptions about how societies worked as as assumed by everyone running parliament and, and that. And and one of the fundamental things is that like he talks about a social contract, like we all have this, this agreement we make with each other to, to be in society together. Mm-hmm. And the fundamental thing about that social contract is that you are in society together for everyone's mutual welfare, and that the the purpose of your society is is to preserve public welfare, meaning everyone's welfare. And you only have society for that purpose, and therefore you only have a government, you only elect a, a parliament or appoint a parliament or whatever. You only appoint them to, to make laws for everyone to achieve that end, to make sure everyone is, is well and safe and secure. And what's happening now is in recent decades we have 
and succession of governments that are governing with laws that allow uh, mutual destruction. Like they allow environment and climate breakdown and collapse. So public welfare has been intentionally destroyed through law. So, and now it's becoming really, really obvious since Extinction Rebellion kicked off. It's become yeah. really, really obvious to millions of people that, that we're permitting the destruction of our only home and our, our public welfare is being annihilated by conscious choices in law. Mm-hmm. So really, we've got a government that's governing to destroy public welfare. And so that's that's not a power anyone ever gave to them. It's not a power you can give to someone else. You can't give someone else the power, like the arbitrary power to destroy or save your life. It's not something you can give up to anyone. So they, they, they can't, they shouldn't ever have that power. But mm-hmm. but it has been it has been seized in that way and, and used in that way. And so so that's that's so so fundamentally wrong that it um it basically requires to rule to rule in that way, you can't you can't rule by consent, by everyone's mutual agreement, by, by everyone's consent, because no one would ever consent to that. So that's why you've got to rule by fear, and you've got to basically throw the rule book out. And another another really critical thing in the rule book, like this like foundational philosophy, is that we should be governed by laws that are, are known and understood, so that we can you know, decide what we do in life and then know what the laws are and just avoid doing those things. And what, and what you've seen in the Pub, uh, Police Crime Sentencing Act is laws that are intentionally vague. Mm-hmm. The public nuisance um, section outlaws all kinds of subjective things like causing annoyance, causing loss of amenity, causing inconvenience. Um... Oh my god! Very vague things. So yeah, basically, it's laws that you don't know what they are until the police have decided how to act, or the judge has decided how he'll rule on them. So yeah. that basically means you're living in a state of complete uncertainty, and therefore fear. You have to just keep your head down and just do what you think well, the people to... and the police or the courts want you to do. Um, <laughs> they have some things. So they didn't have to do that because. Lost legitimacy by, mm-hmm. by throwing out governing to preserve big picture public welfare. They then have to throw out all these other tenants as well. You we have to bring in arbitrary laws. I mean, not arbitrary laws, un- undetermined laws, so that it can govern in an arbitrary way. Police can just decide on the day whether they don't like something or not. Yeah, well, and that's why it's got so many groups out to to um, campaign against it because. All of those groups you decide mm-hmm. describe they all, in different ways, uh, are campaigning for people who have been shafted by you know, the, the actions of the police and the justice system, and and everyone and they can all see that it's just it's just getting worse. The police are just being given arbitrary powers to just just you know violently detain whoever they decide is a bad. Big, <laughs> yeah. So, um, and bizarrely, by, by passing that law, they, they're uniting everyone against. Well, it's this kind, of, kind of working for us, really, isn't it? I mean, because yeah, it is uniting yeah. everybody. Just want to take back to something you said a minute ago um, about you know the, the laws being so vague. They used to have a um, 
a saying in the Soviet Union in like the government is you find me the man and I'll and I'll find you the law or you find me the man and I'll find you the crime. And that kind of goes back to that same idea of the laws being so vague that they could just pick and choose which laws have broken as and when they need them. And I think that's a direction we should be going. Absolutely, because when you look at all the things that people do now that could be considered public nuisances, um, I mean, a public nuisance under Section 78 is, is doing an act and being reckless to the consequence that it might um, cause a risk to life, injury, disease, or annoyance or inconvenience. Annoyance. But, but you see, there's a lot of, um, I mean, for instance, burning a whole lot of fossil fuel, that definitely creates a risk to life. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? And in perhaps one of the worst, like, nu- perhaps one of the worst public nuisances that humans have ever um, committed. But you don't see that public nuisance law being applied to really deadly actions like that. It's only applied to political acts of disobedience, really. You know, this is, not, the reason I wanted to get you on this show is because I, I believe that, you know, you being where you are for the reasons that you are being in prison is so historically significant. And I feel like it will go down in history. But I feel like if the media and the government got their way, all this would be forgotten. So that's why I think it's very important to document um people like yourself and uh you know people like well people like myself as well who've taken action as well and make sure these voices get heard but uh, yeah it's just i think people look back on conversations like this decades from now i'm being honest so yeah i um, sure hope there are people with the freedom and leisure time to talk about historical politics (laughs) 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 that'll be in some ways a, a, a a good outcome considering the range of possibilities right now <laughs> well yeah um oh god we don't we don't we don't we don't know how bad it's going to get really um certainly there's a wide range of possibilities yeah it all, it all depends on what we do now though really doesn't it like how soon we start decreasing our fossil fuels how quickly we start um you know preparing and building resilience into our systems. Yeah, absolutely. Like, how many people survive and how many landscapes and cultures and ecosystems survive depend on, depends on how urgently we act now. I mean, sadly, like, a lot of places and ecosystems and cultures are going to get horribly, like, affected. No matter what, even in the best-case scenarios now. But there's, there's always... There's always things we can save. Like every every increment of um, of action now will will lead to more people surviving. Yeah. More more of the the beautiful inheritance that we have in the world. More of it surviving. The the way I look at it is, um, the more awareness we can bring to the problem, and the more brains are working on finding a solution. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Or maybe, you know, maybe is another way of thinking about it. Maybe the solution to the climate crisis is in the mind of somebody who lives in the third world who doesn't have time to think of it about anything else but food and shelter. Yeah, precisely. Like, I, I've been able to do lots of neat stuff in the last three or four years. 
And and one one thing I've reflected on is that I I've just been able to exp- like do create lots of stuff and I mean I haven't talked about it here. I've been able to design lots of interesting things for Extinction Rebellion and build build things and and just be very creative. And I've really only been able to do it because I've been a very fortunate person in life. I had quite a comfortable upbringing and and you know I've always had economic security and everything. So it means I can mess about with stuff and take risks and, and yeah. experiment with things. And I've got, you know, had some resources to, 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 to mess about and buy things and make things. And that's time and, and money that most people in the world don't have at all and can't for, can't spend half a day messing about with some creative idea because they've got such pressing demands on their time. To, to survive and make sure their family survives. So, yeah, it also it, it it raises this huge potential that's out there. If you could liberate more of people's innate talents and passions, um, there's really you, know, you can imagine there's an un, unlimited wellspring of of potential out there within people. Just most people are, are so. Um, um, Well, I think uh, we both know that it's, it's going to get worse, really. I mean, all those third world countries, their living standards are like just, even in the best case scenarios, they're going to, de- they're going to decrease and we're going to have millions of climate refugees. And um... Can I, I want to ask you a question, actually, because this, this is the question, really, that Black Plagues us all is, uh, so I'll tell you, um, we had some builders round at my uh, at my dad's house the other day, and I told them about the podcast, and they saw my ankle tag, and they're asking about it. And the most people, maybe maybe in, well, I'm going to say most people aren't aware of how serious the climate crisis really is, and they're just not aware. I mean, they think they 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 know it's getting warm, and they know something's not right, but they're just not quite, you know, clued onto the fact of how screwed we're going to be. How do you think we can get, here's my question to you, so how do you think, in your opinion, we get the masses to wake up to the scale and the size of the problem, and then the second part of that question is, and how would you get them to take action? Because I guess that's the golden question, really, isn't it, that we're all searching for? Well, I would just look at what happened at the beginning of the pandemic. There was a big government information campaign to tell people what these deadly dangers were and yeah. what actions they could take to to preserve the lives of vulnerable people around them. Yeah. And there was, you know, there was on every channel, day in, day out, information was beamed at people telling them how coronavirus was, was dangerous and, and how to avoid it and what they needed to do. Um, That'd be good because God, you know, more people more people are in danger from the climate and ecological collapse. Um, far more people and, and far worse. I mean, it's just the consequences that will never relent. I mean, the pandemic pandemic passes. I mean, the number of people that die is dependent on how how careful and how much healthcare people are given. But you know, the climate and ecological breakdown just means lots of the world is 
uninhabitable. Um, so yeah, I mean, institutions of government and media need to tell people. Yeah, I can imagine if we how, actually had how much deadly deadly danger. Can you imagine if we had that on like the same way we have with the coronavirus? Um, in fact, that's a naughty word. Actually, we we probably won't. Uh, we'll probably bleep that word out <laughs> in this episode because we don't want to get demonetized. Um, what the word coronavirus? Um, Why can't you say that? I don't know. It's just it's a hot topic in it for some people. Um, uh-huh. so what I was going to say now, yeah, but can you imagine if we had like a an information campaign like we did with with the virus and it was on all the news channels and it was on it was on everywhere. I mean. That's fundamentally what we need, really, isn't it? And for that, we need a government that is not owned and bought, but owned by uh, powerful corporations. We need a government that's actually, you know, has got the people's uh, best interest at heart, and not the. Uh... Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Um... I don't see this government ever ever conceding to that. I think they'll fight tooth and nail. And I think it'll only be a new system of government uh that will do that. I don't in fact I don't, I'm not even sure I'm starting to lose faith in the idea of a system of centralized government altogether, to be honest. Have you got any thoughts about that? Any uh Oh I have I have lots of thoughts. I think it's really about what system of money we have. I think there's a, a beautiful s- summarizing quote of that by the banker Rothschild from the 18th, 19th century. And he said, uh, give me the power to create a nation's currency and I care not who makes the laws. <laughs> and um, I reread a really influential book on, on influential on me recently. Um, that is Charles Eisenstein's Sacred Economics. And mm-hmm. He points out in the, the first third of his book about all the problems that um, we're always going to be driven by our present money system to tear up whatever resources we can get hold of and grab everything from the commons, whether that's the commons of the land and the sea and the air or the commons of society, like our time and our, our labor we're always going to be drawn to tear up the commons and feed it into economic activity while we have money that is created as debt and therefore endlessly needs to be repaid plus interest. It, it will always, even if we save and stop destroying the climate, we'll be driven to find some new realm to extract like we'll, mine the whole seabed for lithium or whatever. We'll find some new um, outlet to <laughs> destroy ourselves. Oh, I know. While we, while we still have, have, have money that has to endlessly grow to avoid do you think, um, financial collapse. That's your question, right? Because um, now I might be naive in, in thinking this, but do you think it's possible to see economic growth and also reverse climate change? For example, um, one quick example, right? So I heard about um, a kind of a, a type of concrete that used carbon dioxide as a as a main ingredient. 
So therefore, to produce that concrete, it was carbon negative, but obviously it's more expensive than normal concrete. You know, if we were, for example, were to create the largest infrastructure project in the history of mankind, all using uh, carbon negative concrete, and we paid people to replant all the forests and all the jungles in the world, could we, do you think it's possible to see economic growth and reverse climate change at the same time? Or do you think that's those two things are uh, completely opposed to each other? Um, yeah, in, in, the, in the short term, under the present system, you could have loads of conventional economic growth um, addressing climate change and ecological collapse because there's so many new so many new systems that need to be built and so much repair work like you described yeah there's there's so much activity that needs to be done so there's there's no there's no lack of of activity that we could be doing um economically like in in a for, for money and for pay um I see a lot of people in Extinction Rebellion. They talk about degrowth being the answer. But I don't really see that as a, as a valid. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't see us being able to pull it off. Really, what do you think? I think it will. It will be essential because, like Charles Eisenstein identified, um, if we're endlessly seeking growth, and the economic growth means more the greater value of financial transactions circulating every year. If we're to have endlessly increasing volumes of financial transactions happening every year, then that means we need to be doing more and more activities every mm. year for each other. And um, eventually we, we can't endlessly increase that unless people go and inhabit other planets and things. Um, so inevitably there will have to be degrowth either through horrible collapse or or a <laughs> conscious process of, um, of, of of fundamentally changing money so that it bears negative interest and things like that. Um, we will not have, yeah, there definitely can't be infinite growth because when you, when you talk about 3% economic growth, that effectively means all the activity in your society doubles in every generation. So you can't, it sounds modest, three percent growth, but it's, it's doubling yeah. of, of it, your it, society in a, in a generation. That can't happen. Imagine, can't imagine happen. if we uh, if we change the rules, though. So, like, uh, all economic activity had to be carbon negative. Like, imagine, imagine, I might be dreaming right now, but imagine if we could rebuild our society so that every 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 area was carbon negative, and or, or at least carbon neutral, more carbon negative, really. Then, yeah, that that would be that would be good, but eventually people will be driven to, like I said, mine the seabed of the whole ocean for lithium and whatever other minerals. People will be driven to convert all of their time into an economic um, resource. Like, do, uh, like we do so many things. Like, there's so many things we now do for uh, in, a, in a money transaction that we used to do for each other for free, like. Babysitting's one or childcare, like mm-hmm. you know, a hundred years ago, no one would pay someone to take care of their children. But well, I used to wear boarding schools in. But but now this now it's very you know very common. We'll pay people to do things that we used to do each other for 
free as gifts. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's one way we've kept on growing the economy in Britain by just doing more things in a financial transaction um, rather than just doing things for the love of it for each other. Um, so if you one way to, yeah, we'll either keep growing the economy by dividing up all of our time into little economic chunks to exchange for money. Um, that that will end pretty depressingly. I'm going to be honest. I'm not too educated on economics, really. Um... That's all right. Neither am I. <laughs> I just like reading. I just like reading books. How many how many books have you read since you've been inside then? Uh thirty nine. Jesus. Well, I've been here seven months. Oh. I slowed down. I, I read about uh, I can't remember fifteen in the first month, but I slowed oh. down after that. Did more writing and designs and things. Have you done uh, any drawing or painting? Um, I've mainly done design sketches for structures that I design and build. A little, little bit of artwork at one of the graphic classes, but mainly, mainly design sketches. And and today, literally today, people are hard at work on one of the, the structures I've been sketching. What and kind it's of going to be built? It's a big bamboo and cable structure. It's going to be built at Glastonbury in June. We, we built it there last year, and it's it's back again, and it's expanded. It's it's built by Project Bunny Rabbit. On Instagram, under Pro Bunny Rabbit, and it's going to be one of the venues at Shangri La in Glastonbury, which is known as the Naughty Corner. So I think it's a perfect place for <laughs> our structure to go. And the this system of bamboo and cables was one we developed in Extinction Rebellion to do blockades. And the first time it was used was for a blockade of the. Um, Murdoch printing presses in 2020. I bet the police were a bit. Um, I bet the police were a bit puzzled the first time they came across those, weren't they? Yeah, they were a bit taken aback. They um, put it in the too hard basket. <laughs> dealt, dealt with everyone on the ground first. But they, yeah, they're quite quite handy because you kind of the person suspended inside a bird cage, and it's difficult for the the police with their cherry picker to to reach and grab you and you have to go to quite quite some lengths and get several cherry pickers and um, yeah it's it's uh, about the most efficient way for one person to to hold hold space oh man I've never actually been up in one of those bamboo towers you know I'm actually quite I remember you had a little you had a little um, training climb yeah, I didn't get very high though. I I, I didn't get very high. Um, I wanted to. I've always been very eager with this kind of stuff. Yeah, you got distracted by salsa dancing. I remember. You yeah. were you were off and salsa dancing. <laughs> yeah, that's uh that's the day that I met uh, my friend Annie actually. Um, she, yeah, I remember. She's been glorious, on the show, by the way. Glorious, gorgeous August sunshine. Has she been on the show? Yeah, Annie Annie's been on the show. I had her on. Uh, oh, cool. She, she was one of the first guests on. Yeah, you, you and Annie are friends, aren't you? Yeah, another fascinating person I met through Extinction Rebellion, and um, and and someone who someone who helped us with Project Bunny Rabbit and the bamboo structures get into um, 
I guess the the art establishment in mm. London and got us our first commission. And um Oh yeah, it's amazing what happens when you just go out and sit sit down on the road. It just, just happened that Annie was passing Oxford Circus. I think she she probably sold you that, and just decided to take part in the Extinction yeah. Rebellion. And um Well she she got arrested by accident actually. Yeah. Tell, and um yeah, and, and I, I just first my first actual action with them was 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 going to Parliament Square for the the first rebellion, just to sit in the road outside Parliament. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating where you end up after that. Like I met so many brilliant creative people, and then we ended up starting this um, artistic construction group. And and none of this stuff would have ever happened if we hadn't taking part in disobedient resistance. Yeah. It it has lots of um, unexpected offshoots. It really does, doesn't it? I mean, like, you meet so many in- incredibly kind, intelligent, caring people, and there's no shortage of different routes to go down once you've got involved in this kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I've got... A, it's I've very, got... very empowering and, and inspiring. You just, once you've done... Once you've stood up to the powers that be, in whatever way it is, but just just doing something, just uh, to, to stand up for what you know is right, and that that life is just generally being just smashed around the earth, and just to stand up against it makes you believe lots of you could do lots of other things, I guess, and and it all fits. It all fits with I guess, the philosophy I've read and. Um, and perhaps one of the, my favorite philosophers of these days, Joanna Macy, how does she describes if humanity's civilization is going to survive, it will go through a great turning. Mm-hmm. And that will, that will comprise of three mutually essential, mutually reinforcing dimensions of action. And the first one's obstruction, that's trying to stop and slow down the harm and the, the damage being done to life. And the second one is making alternative systems and ways to do things mm-hmm. in balance with life. And the third is transforming our mindsets, transforming our consciousness. So we don't recreate the problems like stop global warming by digging up all the seabed for lithium, right? We don't <laughs> just recreate all our problems in different um, guises. Um, and I, I've experienced it exactly just because I went and sat down on the road in Parliament Square and boom, I get meet all these people who want to create new types of structure out of bamboo. So, I mean, bamboo's a, a nice thing because it, it grows really fast and um, it's basically a re- regenerative resource. Um, yeah, if, it, if it's managed properly, yeah. Yeah. And and now like that I'm in prison, I guess I'm doing the consciousness side of things. All that, I just talk to people and write and communicate with all the people who write into me. And they write articles, and it's it's um, basically what, spiritual. It's spiritual work, isn't it? What kind of articles have you been? Have you so have you been writing articles then? Yeah, I've just been writing essays about things that have interested me while I've been in prison. Like the first one was about the philosophy of John Locke and comparing that to the police crime sentencing and courts bill, and that that trend going on in a government at the moment um yeah then uh, half a dozen other essays just 
things that were on my you know burning questions in my head where can uh are these are these things online where can people find them yeah you, um they're on medium.com and my name i've got them under bumblebee unbarred so i think if you just put into google medium and bumblebee unbarred mm-hmm. then you should should find it okay and um I went crazy on the writing up until like my trial and I think it was a really good process to go through because you're practicing you're researching and researching all the background and arguments and I mean when I got to court I could I guess make the case very emphatically and with, with confidence and have answers to you know the the skepticism of the prosecutor and the judge and um and i think because we (laughs) presented such a a a convincing case why we'd done things for very serious reasons that was part of the reason the judge had to throw the book at it because he was like well other people clearly could have could, could share these motivations and reasoning and they're substantial so Oh shit! <laughs> After crash down on this like a ton of bricks, and yeah. I, I feel it, it validates exactly it validates the point we're trying to make, and that is it's an attempt to keep people in line with a very destructive regime by making everyone afraid, and that's why this that's why this solidarity march coming up is really awesome because you just need millions of people to come out and say no, not not afraid, not going to be ruled in a way that destroys my future yeah well i think that's very it's a big there's something very powerful about um, not being afraid of uh of government and not being afraid of prison and not being afraid of what they'll do to you um i want to tell you something by the way uh, morgan i was given uh, 120 hours community service <coughs> and i've done it done it a couple of times now but i've just come to the point emotionally and and but by principle i've decided i cannot can no longer do that I can't work for free because of my actions, because of my protesting actions. And I've decided that I'm not going to go anymore. I'm going to refuse to do unpaid work and I don't care. I hope that, I don't, I don't care if they throw me in prison for a bit. I just hope it's not too long. Um, I don't know, it's just, you might think I'm crazy for that, but it's just the, it's just the, the, the bit I've got, the, the place I've gotten to. What do you think? Well, it's, it's another form of, disobedience against the regime, isn't it? There's, there's all kinds of ways we can disobey disobey laws when we want to object to how a regime is really running running our society. And um, yeah, there's, there's lots of endless ways you can do it. Uh, yeah, well, I think this is coming more from like an emotional response and not like a a tactical response, you know. I can't see what I'm going to get from it tactically. Just, I'm just, I'm just feeling like I'm, I, I, I'm resisting this system with every ounce of my being. Does that make sense? And it just doesn't feel right to go turn up and do unpaid work. Uh, even if you know, it just doesn't feel right to go, go and do unpaid work. And some people might think I'm crazy, but yeah, it's just, that, that's what I was going to tell you. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. Um... That's that's your choice. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's bad to do unpaid work. I think I think some of the best 
work we do is unpaid and the most beautiful and caring work we do is unpaid yeah it's not yeah it, it's um the context though isn't it yes it's the context because like i um yeah i'll sit now i also got you on the phone so i'll keep recording i mean it, yeah it's just uh it's one of the principles for me anyway, that's just where I've gotten to and uh, we'll see what happens from that and uh, yeah, we'll wing it. But um, we've, done about, uh, we've done about an hour now by the way, um, but we can do longer, we've, there's no limit on, on how long we can, we can go for. I'm happy to answer more questions if you have more. Okay, okay. Um, I have this, well I guess there's a question I've been thinking about to ask you. If you could go back to the day or the night before your your QE2 bridge action, would you do it all over again? Would you like knowing like the consequences and where you'd end up and the the sentence you'd get? Would you do it all over again? Yes. Yes. You feel strongly about that. Yes, because the consequences are the action. It's all one big long action and it has so many ripples going out from it much of which I'll never see or know about yeah and, um, that's why that's why we do this kind of disobedience because it creates a dilemma for the regime mm -hmm. if they let it go ahead then it um, creates a big direct like the message goes out directly because you're doing the action, doing whatever it is, and 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 <clears throat> getting the message across on that way. But if they shut it down and and repress people and punish people, then that also communicates the message. And in, in a way, the the more they they punish me, the more it conveys the message that we're really um when when we suspended ourselves on the bridge, we're really challenging the regime to, to, if they want to remove us, then then they then they would need to, to be violent. And this yeah. regime already does a lot of violence out of sight, like to all our climate and ecology and so many people that suffer from the harm done to that. So there's a whole lot of violence going on out of sight, and we're daring the regime to to do that violence in full public view, and um, and thankfully in our case they didn't do anything violent to us. But then imprisoning is is an, another type of, of punishment, and it um, makes a lot of people pay attention and think about the violence that's going on, the, the violence that we're doing every day to to the world by running our motorways, we're running our fossil fuel system in the UK and then only you know, slowly, slowly sort of trying to wind it down. So it, it, it creates this dilemma that whether the state acts or doesn't act, um, the message gets publicized badly. Yeah. Yeah. I agree so we didn't really know when we set out exactly how it would play out, but I guess we did understand that whichever way it played out, it would make a lot of people confront this horrible truth that we're doing a horrible violence to to our world. 
to our to our, not just to our world, but to like our our children's futures. And I, I hear that you hear that quite a lot of children's futures. And oh, our own future. I mean, I'm forty. I want to live another fifty years or so. I'll yeah. definitely be around when all this um, crap hits the fan. But and um, what, what, a lot of people are the crap's hitting the fan for people right now. Like I, I, millions I, and millions of people. Yeah, you're right about that. We, we don't really know how many people are, are dying every year because climate uh, oh, and ecological collapse. It's, it's, who knows how much it is, but it's it's, it's certainly millions by now every I, year. I, I imagine like a future. Can you imagine? I don't want to be pessimistic, but right. I'm like, let's say for whatever reason, we didn't get enough people to come together, and enough people hearing this message didn't find the courage within within themselves to stand up, and you know, 20, 30 years from now, like, when I'm like 50, 60 odd year old, there's going to be, well, if, if you're in your 20s and 30s now, you're 50, 60 year old, and the, the 18 year old to that day will not be, have a future. Like, you will, you will have lived your life at the very end of, you know, the most advanced moment in human civilization, and you would have enjoyed the nice life that you that we've talked about and all the, the things we take for granted. <coughs> And the eighteen-year-olds that day will be left sh absolute shit, an absolute shitstorm, like yeah. a broken weather system, heat waves, droughts, wildfires, crop failure, starvation, war, famine, murder, and everything in between. Yeah. Um, I honestly think like, and if if they might by some hell of it survive and and have children of their own, their children will spit on our graves. Not maybe, my, maybe not mine, maybe not yours, but everybody that turned away and try, tried, and everybody who, who saw the IPCC report in the office, in your engineering firm, read it, understood it, and then thought, oh, well, you know, future generations will spit on their graves because they threw away the greatest, you know, like, like, like the abundance of life on earth, the food. So I'm doing all the talking here now, but, you know, I guess so well, anyway, but like the well, way it was looking great. Yeah, there will. Well, I remember I happened to be up late watching the the first night of the Ukraine war last February, and I happened to be working late, and I saw it on the news, and I thought saw that it was all starting just the minute it started, and then I, I was like transfixed in horror, like looking at the, the TV for like thirty hours or so before I finally went to bed, because it made me think that. God, that happened so quick and so just frighteningly fast. It descended into a, a massive war. And and it made me think, God, that's really close to, to my home in Europe. And it made me think that there will come a day, well, I mean, it could, might not, it doesn't need to happen, but there could come a day in the, in the coming decades when another war like that starts that's, that's bigger and at that point, any capacity for collective action and thinking about the future and planning long term and addressing all these systemic things, that possibility will completely dis disintegrate in a moment. And we're living now in a time we still can possibly do big things like for the future long term. But that could all that could disappear in a moment. And once that's happened, there'll just be nothing but short-term survival for, you know, small areas of people and whatever. So the, the, we're in this window now that, you know, could close, who knows when. 
And um, yeah. certainly, certainly a big range of possibilities, that's the way I see. Like a massive range of possibilities. Uh, Morgan, it's been great to have you on the show. Um, I think a lot of people need to hear your voice. And <clears throat> they, they will do through, through this medium, through this uh, long-form podcasting. So if you've liked what we've uh, recorded today and you like hearing from Morgan, then uh, please like and subscribe and subscribe to Activism Uncensored on YouTube. Uh, we've also got a Patreon account um, in the link description below. So uh, is there anything you want to say, Morgan, before we, uh, before we go? Um, don't be afraid of the British justice system. <laughs> yeah. Unless, unless, you know, it obviously is structurally racist and misogynist and that, I mean... Um, some people have got to <laughs> call its bluff on mass. I mean, I don't, I don't really see uh, things improving fast enough in the, other, in the usual channels. Mm -hmm. Just don't be afraid of it. Well, thank you for that. And uh, yeah, signing for another episode.